still as tickled, if not more so, to be with you all now as I was then, except for Ann Wolford. She laughed at me this morning on her way by, and I'm only saying this because I know she's a good sport, and I'm making fun of myself here. I love Ann. She, she, she reminds me every time just by the look that she gives me that I forget when I, when we, when I came and did, you know, uh, Christmas Eve service for the first time. I hope I'm not embarrassing you. I see you're laughing because <laughs> it's at my expense. You know. The church I was at before, you know, the deacons, the men served the communion, and uh, that hadn't happened here until Christmas Eve while I had been in among your gathering. And so on Christmas Eve, I had my head looking down at my notes, and I said, and now the men will come to serve communion. And I looked up, and there's Ann looking at me, just grinning from ear to ear as she's walking down the aisle. So every time she walks down the aisle now, here she comes with that big old smile on her face. And it makes me laugh every time. I love it. Uh, you know, I, I just uh, I love these things. And as life goes on, uh, as long as I'm with you all, I look forward to many more funny stories at my expense like that one. I will not forget you ever again, Anne. <laughs> oh, my. And I was worried that I wasn't going to have a joke to tell this morning, you know. So y'all just laugh a little at my expense. But, uh, but I mean every word of that. I'm, I'm thankful to be here. I'm thankful to bring God's Word with you this morning. I'm so looking forward to this series that we're getting ready to enter into together. I uh, have been praying over it for quite a while, and uh, as soon as I read this passage of Scripture that we're going to read this morning, I knew that God had this in store uh, for us together. So let us pray now and ask God not only to bless this particular sermon, but to bless this series that we're we're entering into together. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, thank you for bringing us here and giving us this opportunity to gather and to worship, uh, Lord, for your name's sake, in, in your house with, with your people. Lord, there is nothing special about this building, nothing, nothing mystical about it until your church comes in. Then this place becomes special. It becomes sacred. It becomes holy ground. Because, Lord, wherever we are, your people have been bought by the blood of your Son, baptized into Him and living in newness of life. Lord, we are the redeemed. We are the ones who, who stand as a living testament to you and to your Son. Lord, your Spirit within us that collectively gathers under that promise where two or three are there, there you are also in our midst. Lord, that's what makes this place, this gathering, this time every Sunday special. So, Father, I humbly come and pray that as we examine these scriptures, Lord, that you would speak to us through them, that you would use it to bring about not only a blessing in our life, but that we might take this same scripture and be a blessing in the lives of others. Lord, into our life, pour comfort where it is needed, but also pour conviction too. That way, Lord, it might be said of us more today than yesterday. We loved you more. We served you greater. All because we paid attention to your word. We paid attention to your spirit's prompting. Prompting us to follow after you. So, Lord, as we enter this sermon as well as this series, bless us, Father. Bless us, Lord, that we might be able to, 
to see and hear you clearly, to be the church and the people that you've called us to be. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you please to turn with me to Joshua chapter 20. Uh, If you don't have your Bibles, that's okay. It's on the screen for you, as well as printed in your bulletin. Can everybody see that okay? You know, I think it looks good on my end. Does it look good on your end? Can you read that? Okay, good. Because you never know with these funny backgrounds. Sometimes, you know, they just don't, they don't pan out. So, Joshua chapter 20 is where we are, beginning in verse 1. And we're going to read this entire chapter. This is what the Scripture says. And the Lord said to Joshua, Tell the Israelites to designate the cities of refuge, as I instructed you through Moses so that anyone who kills a person accidentally and unintentionally may flee there and find protection from the avenger of blood. When they flee to one of these cities, they are to stand in the entrance of the city gate and state their case before the elders of that city. Then the elders are to admit the fugitive into their city and provide a place to live among them. If the avenger of blood comes in pursuit, the elders must not surrender the fugitive because the fugitive killed their neighbor unintentionally and without malice aforethought. They are to stay in that city until they have stood trial before the assembly and until the death of the high priest who is serving at that time. Then they may go back to their own home in the town from which they fled. So they set apart Kadesh in Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali, Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kirath Arab that is Hebron in the hill country of Judah. East of the Jordan on the other side from Jericho, they designated Bezir in the wilderness on the plateau in the tribe of Reuben, Ramoth and Gilead in the tribe of Gad, and Golan and Bashan in the tribe of Manasseh. Any of the Israelites or any foreigner residing among those among them who killed someone accidentally could flee to these designated cities and not be killed by the avenger of blood prior to standing trial before the assembly. We started at the beginning of 2019 with the vision of being a faithful church. We called it keeping faith through the tides. That is our vision, to be a faithful church who is constantly and consistently through all of life anchored to God. Because life is constantly changing, like the tides that go in and out, our culture shifts. People move. Jobs change. The world progresses. Kids grow up. And shocker, we get older, right? These things just happen in life without our permission and without regard for how we feel about it. Things change like the tides. Now, we try to keep up, but sometimes it can be a little bit difficult. But yet, despite all of these changes, there is one thing in this world that will remain the same. And that is the steadfast faithfulness and promises of our God to His people. That's the one thing that will never change. You can count on, in this world, God's promises that He gave man. When you open His book... The same as it was then, it is today. It has not changed. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? 
Yes, amen. We need to believe that God's Word has not changed. Culture changes, but God's Word does not. Just because we try to change doesn't mean that we should make the Bible try to change with us. We should seek to understand the Bible in our culture, not make our culture try to interpret the Scriptures. That is why we have trouble sometimes keeping faith. Because what we hear sometimes and what we see and what we want to believe does not line up with God, and therefore it is not anchored firmly in Him. Therefore it will not hold us, it will not keep us, it will not guide us, and it will not direct us if it is not anchored in His truth. But when we seek His truth, His steadfast faithfulness and promises will stand forever in our lives. As long as we hold to Him despite all these changes, we can always look forward to His everlasting and ever-enduring promises like the one we set out to stand on at the beginning of the year, Psalms 125, verse 1. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken, but endures forever. It's really hard to believe that it's gone by this fast, but we began this series about six, seven months ago. And what we've seen in these past six to seven months is is that in order to be counted among the faithful, we must learn ourselves how to be faithful, how to tap into God's faithfulness and how He causes us to be faithful in return. And we found that it is helpful in life to be faithful in these three key areas that the Bible talks about all the time that it constantly reminds us that we need to go back to in our days of living. The first is faithfulness to prayer. Faithfulness to prayer. Prayer needs to be an anchor in our life. As well as God's Word, the most important message ever told, is that thing in which we also need to anchor our lives. And then finally, we need to set deep roots in a desire to be faithful to discipleship. God promised us that He would be with us always until the very end of the age, but it was conditional upon our willingness to make what? Disciples. God's promise to endure with us, to be with us always, is conditional upon our willingness to make disciples. We are supposed to grow in faithfulness to God first. That's why we start out with things that would build and enrich our spiritual life first. Prayer and the study of the Word. We have to be constantly grounded ourselves before we can ever hope to reach out to anyone in a meaningful way. But we need to anchor ourselves in His prayer, in His Word, and through prayer, so that as soon as we can, we might make disciples, those people who will be blessed as much as we are because of Jesus Christ. You see, for this goal, this desire of God. We have to work just a little. We have to seek rootedness in Him as well as be determined to help other people find rootedness in Christ as well. And I know you have heard this passage many times since I came and trial preached just about a year ago. In fact, it would be a year ago tomorrow. But I can't help but repeat this commission and mission of Jesus to and for the church forever 
and always. Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 18 and reading to verse 20. All authority, Jesus said, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, there's that promise, surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Before leaving earth, Jesus exercised His total authority to set forth a precedence that would endure from that moment He spoke it until the time the earth ceases to revolve around the sun. Now, Jesus could have established anything. He could have decreed whatever He wanted to. And it would stand enforced both on earth as well as in heaven. And this is what He chose. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. What we have affectionately come to know, the Great Commission all the precedences he could have set. This is the one he chose. This disciple-making process. Those who have been made disciples are to now make disciples. For those who have accepted Jesus Christ, they are to help others see why we chose him in the first place. And that wasn't just a command to them, the disciples gathered on that hillside. That's a command still to us, those who have been made disciples, who have been made disciples, who have been made disciples by the original disciples. Because to Jesus, there is no backup plan. There is no second option. It is the job of those who have been redeemed to help show others why they should be redeemed as well. And if this message of the gospel was good enough for us, should we not share it with others? Amen? If this gospel that you accepted that cleansed your heart, that brought upon righteousness in your life, if it was not just good for you, is it not good for others? Amen? See, Jesus has established that we are the way that this world will hear the gospel. The only way the world will hear the gospel is through His servants who choose to spread his message. But my question is, do we? Do we? I want you to listen to this modern parable by Dr. Charles Swindoll. On a dangerous seacoast, notorious for shipwrecks, there was a crude little life-saving station. Actually, the station was merely a hut with only one boat. But the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the turbulent seas. With little thought for themselves, they would go out day and night tirelessly searching for those in danger as well as the lost. Many lives were saved by this brave band of men and women who faithfully worked as a team in and out of the life-saving station. By and by... It became a famous place. Some of those who had been saved as well as others along the seacoast wanted to become associated with this little station. They were willing to give their time 
and their energy and their money in support of its objectives. New boats were purchased. New crews were trained. The station that once was obscure and crude and virtually insignificant began to grow. Some of its members were unhappy that that the hut was so attractive and so poorly equipped. They felt a, a more comfortable place should be provided. Emergency cots were replaced with lovely furniture. Rough, handmade equipment was discarded and sophisticated, classy systems were installed. The hut, of course, had to be torn down to make room for all the additional equipment, furniture, systems, and appointments. By its completion, the life-saving station had become a popular gathering place and its objectives had begun to shift. It was now used as sort of a clubhouse, an attractive building for public gatherings, saving lives, feeding the hungry, strengthening the fearful, and calming the disturbed rarely occurred by now. Fewer members were now interested in braving the sea on life-saving missions, so they hired professional lifeboat crews to do the work. The original goal of the station wasn't altogether forgotten, however. The life-saving motives still prevailed in the club's decorations. In fact, there was a liturgical lifeboat placed in the room of sweet memories with soft, indirect lighting which helped to hide the layer of dust upon the once-used vessel. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the boat crews brought in loads of cold, wet, and half-drowned people. They were dirty, some terribly sick and, and lonely. Others were different from a majority of the, of the club members. The beautiful new club suddenly became messy and cluttered. A special committee saw to it that a shower house was immediately built outside and away from the club so victims of the shipwreck could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there were strong words and angry feelings which resulted in a division among the members. Most of the people wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities and all involvement with shipwrecked victims. It's too unpleasant. It's a hindrance to our social life. It's opening the door to folks who are not of our kind. And as you and I would expect, some still insisted upon saving lives, for that was their first and primary objective. That their only reason for existence was ministering to anyone needing help regardless of the club's beauty or size or decorations. They were voted down and told if they wanted to save lives of various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station just down the coast. And they did. As years passed, the new station experienced the same old changes. It evolved into another club and Yet another life-saving station was born, and history continued to repeat itself. And if you visit the coast today, you'll find a large number of exclusive, impressive clubs along the shoreline 
owned and operated by slick professionals who have lost all involvement with the saving of lives. Now, shipwrecks still occur in those waters, but now most of the victims are not saved. Every day they drowned at sea, and so few seem to care, so very few. Now, the question remains not for everyone else and not for other churches as this parable implies, but, but for us here in this place, as the people of God, are those shipwrecked people today important to us? Ask this question in your own heart and mind, and I'm not passing judgment in reading this story at all. I'm not saying I think that's where we are. But as you can see, and as you look at the witness of so many churches come and gone around us, are we losing perspective? Have we maybe lost perspective, maybe in our own heart and mind? When I first heard this story, it was a very prodding question. I didn't ask the church where I'm at, do I believe that this is important to them? No. I turned and asked myself, is this important to me? As we join together collectively in the mysticism of, of how God brings the people of God together into that promise where two or three are there, are gathered, there I am with them also. Is, is this important to us? The shipwrecked, the tossed, the hurting, the broken, and the destroyed. Can they in this place find refuge from their storms? Because church, there are storms going on all around us. While I was preparing for last week's sermon, I came across a couple news articles that you know, I found very disturbing. That I think really speak to the, the sad state that, that our country is, is experiencing right now. One was on a national scale following the El Paso and Dayton shootings in which President Donald Trump assured schoolchildren that they have nothing to worry about following the two mass shootings that left 31 people dead over last weekend. Isn't that sad that our president feels the need to say that you'll be okay? And, and he says that, and, and I think about it, and I appreciate his words, because we want to tell everybody, it's okay, it's okay. But how more and more commonplace it seems like these shootings are becoming. Nobody ever thought that it would happen in their own hometown. But it did. Boy, there are people hurting in this world. There are people struggling. And the sad thing is, tomorrow it could be us just like it was two years ago when there was an act of, of violence and what came to be known as racism that took place in the downtown mall. Last week on the two-year anniversary, the Daily Progress, our local newspaper, reported that in the two years since that movement and the anti-racist activi activism that followed, these things have defined our city. It's hard, isn't it? 
So not only has the anti-activity defined our city, they say, but also have these terrible acts seem to define our city. We still remember it two years ago. Now it happens everywhere else, but it's happened here too. There, there is sadness taking place all around us. Whether we realize it or not, there are a lot of people who are tossed by life's storms looking for help and looking for rescue. In our world, in our nation, in our very city, there are people hurting and they're looking for answers. Do they know where to turn? They're looking for a common bond. They're looking for a place to go when life doesn't make sense. But where do they go? They need to and, and want to run for help and for answers, but, but where? They want to find belonging when the midst of these things that take place around them, but, but what should they belong to? And what does that belonging cost them? What does that belonging require? What if I've done something wrong? What if you've done something wrong? What if I've messed up? What if, what if I'm sorry? Does it, does it matter to anyone at all what's happened in my life? You may be asking the same question. Does it matter to anyone what's happened to me? When the consequences come, how bad is it going to be? Is there going to be anyone to console me? This isn't just questions being asked in the world. This isn't just questions being asked in the nation. This isn't even questions just being asked in the city. These are questions also being asked in the church. People who are trying to make sense of their lives, to make sense of their storms, to even make sense of their wrongdoings, but they don't know how and where to turn. Some of these people have trouble that's even just chasing right after them, crouching at their very doorstep. The possible consequences are just around the corner for them. Where do they go? Where do they turn to? Where do they go for help? How can they be rescued? Because some people feel like they're about this close from it all coming to an end. And it might not be somebody else that puts it to an end for them. They may choose to do it to themselves. There are people in this very moment asking these questions. And we don't have to look very far to find them, do we? Psalms 46 tells us that God is our refuge and He is our strength. An ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. In an increasingly unstable world, God will always stand as our refuge in a time of trouble. He is a fortress in which we can go to to wait out the storms while they rage around us. He is a place, a shelter in which we can hide while the storm passes by. And though we know this, 
Though we say amen to this passage, though we have claimed it for ourselves and it brings comfort to us, at least it should. I hope it does for you. I hope when life gets difficult that you call on this promise. But what about the people who don't even know who God is? They read this promise and go, well, that seems nice. They may pay it no mind. They probably have never even read it. Wouldn't even know where to find this promise of God in the Scriptures. There are people who have never heard of Jesus Christ. They have never heard about the God who is their refuge in times of storm. When life becomes rough, they turn to whatever they can to seek safety and refuge. They don't realize that God is one of those places, the best place, the only sustaining place they can go. They don't know that if they are lost in the waters of this life. Unless we tell them. Church, Christ had no backup plan. They won't know this promise unless we tell them. And also, unless we choose to exhibit it in our life, to stand as a testament to this being true for us. And so, it's just because, and, and so because it's true for us, it can be true for you. In the days of ancient Israel, God through Moses and then repeated by Joshua, instituted cities of refuge, a place where someone could go who accidentally and unintentionally murdered someone. Now in the next few weeks, we are going to search the Scriptures as to how such a thing could happen as somebody who unintentionally murdered or accidentally killed somebody. I mean, I couldn't. when I first read that, it made no sense. I'm like, how could you do that? But, but it's true. It's true. And that's why God established it. We will look at that in a few weeks. But in the meantime, I would simply like us to hold this thought in our hearts and our minds. If someone were to come to us, were to come to our church, were to come into our life seeking freedom, seeking a place to hide, seeking somewhere to take refuge from an avenger of blood for a wrongdoing, intentional or not, would they find refuge here, in this place? Would they find refuge in your family who calls upon the Lord? Would they find refuge in your cubicle at work when they need help and hope in their life? For the people of God, for us gathered here, we can't do anything else about all the churches around this city, around our country, and around this world. We can only do something about us. We can only determine to be this kind of people, are we going to determine to be these kind of people? Are we going to determine to be someone in whom it doesn't matter what somebody has done? If they could find refuge from the storm, doesn't mean that it's going to work everything out right then. In fact, in the cities of refuge, that didn't often happen. Sometimes people lived years until the priest died before they were allowed to go free. Sometimes people would be in bondage for a long time, for the consequences, but that doesn't mean they have to be in bondage to the sin. We might face consequences years down our life, but that doesn't mean we can't find freedom in knowing that this thing is knocking our door, wanting to take our very life and destroy everything we have to take us away. 
It says that they could hide there from an avenger of blood. Did you know that sin requires a blood sacrifice? How many people have come into your life with sin? How many of you maybe remember that sin in your life that was crying out for demand, for payment, for life, for yours? But somebody stepped in and pleaded your case for you. Jesus Christ. Do you remember the freedom that came then? And do you remember the freedom now? Do you know the freedom now that comes from being in Jesus Christ? Somebody else needs that. And you don't have to look far to find them. In a city of refuge, a person would would plead their case before the city elders and they would be welcomed in unintentionally. Or, excuse me, not unintentionally, but unconditionally. Would we do that in our life, in our church? Not just a few of us, but, but the whole. And if times got hard for them while they are in and among us, would we help continue to hold fast to them? Not consider them a lost cause, but, but continue to hold fast to help them see the promises of God will unfold as long as they remain faithful to the God who is faithful to them. Would we welcome anyone? Would we welcome anyone? For the next few weeks, we're going to look at these questions and and more. But for now, may we ask God to prod our hearts as to our position according to His Scripture. Particularly, I want to look at this one from Ephesians chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God and beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In us, can the world see our God of refuge. In us, can the world see that God can also be their God of refuge. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for bringing us in when we were lost, when we were hurting, and when we were broken, when we were in pain, when we were tried and beaten by this world. Lord, even if we consider our transgressions small, they were still great because all sin demands a blood sacrifice. Thank you, Jesus, that you paid my cost. Thank you, Jesus, that you paid the cost of those who say that they are redeemed, who have garments have been washed white in the blood of the Lamb. Father, thank You. But inasmuch as I am thankful for those who have been redeemed today, I still pray, Lord, enable us to help show Your redemption to all who would call upon Your name.
to anyone who hears and knows your promise accepts it, Lord, in this place, enable us to go into the world to show people what it means to be a child of yours. Help people to see what it means to be forgiven. Help people to see, Lord, that you are a God of refuge through us. There's so much hurt in our world, but Lord, you are that steady rock that stands above it all. I thank you, Lord, for Jesus and just what he's done for us and what he's still yet to do for all who will call upon you until, until time comes to an end. Enable us, your people, to spread your message, your gospel. Through Christ we pray. Amen.